You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. be in John chapter 3 today, so if you have your Bibles here, feel free to turn to that. We'll be in verses 1 through 21. We'll have this on the screen. Uh, we're going to be walking through this pretty uh, verse for verse, so feel free if you have your Bibles just to leave it open or open it on your phone. We'll have it on the screen as well. Let's start here in John chapter 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher uh, that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Oh, we got to repeat there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We'll leave that up there. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, we come under your word today. We believe that it is 
the flourishing wisdom for our life. We believe that it is your revelation about yourself. God, will you use your word, will you use your spirit to convict us where we fall short? Will you use it to bring delight in your grace, Lord? God, we edify you today. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There were three sons who were gathered talking about the gifts that they had just given their mother on her birthday. Uh, The first son reported that he had given his mother a brand new house. It was a huge house. Second son said, well, I gave mom a Mercedes with a driver. And the third son said, well, I, I know mom, and I know that mom loves the Bible. And so I got a special large parrot that is able to recite scripture. All she has to do is suggest the reference, and the bird will say exactly what is written there. The first son got a letter from his mother that said, this house is way too big. Uh, Thank you, but I can't keep it clean. Uh, The second son got a letter from his mom saying, the car is entirely too big, and besides the point, the, the driver is really rude. And then the third son got a letter saying, you, my son, are the only one who truly knows me. You are the only one who understands me. Your two brothers got me stuff that I really didn't need nor want, but you are such a good son. You truly understand me. Thank you. That chicken was delicious. (laughs) Seems to be a misunderstanding there. Misunderstandings can lead us into trouble. They can create conflict in areas where there is no conflict to be found. They can distort our view, and sometimes through misunderstanding, we can hear and interpret wisdom in a way that actually robs it of its splendor and its joy. So today, we are looking at the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16 and all the scripture that surrounds it, a verse that is so familiar to our culture, communicated thoroughly on a day-in and day-out basis that we know that at every large event where there's a crowd gathered, there is a John 3.16 sign somewhere to be found. And through its saturation, by no fault of our own, maybe we have come to a bit of a misunderstanding of what is so glorious and beautiful about this particular passage. So this is the big idea deal today. And to do the big idea today, I want to convey the big ideas of the past. And so the first week of this series, we said this was the big idea, that you were made in creation, by creation, to enjoy God forever. You were made to enjoy God forever. Week two, we said something happened. There was a fall. Disobedience entered into the garden, and we came to realize that we today, we are not imperfect people that need improvement. We are sinners who need a Savior. And then last week, we talked about God's grace given to us through the law that is light And that law reveals, but it doesn't heal. It reveals our ineptness. It reveals how creation was distorted, but it doesn't heal us. And then this week, the big idea is this. It's Jesus elevated, or it's nothing at all. It's Jesus elevated, or it's nothing at all. Jesus has an interaction here with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a part of the ruling council of the day, a group of people called the Pharisees. He is a curious figure in our New Testament that seems to be legitimately intrigued by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's mentioned five times in this gospel, in John's gospel, and oddly enough, 
Nicodemus is present at the burial of Christ. In fact, he buys some of the necessary supplies that would be a part of the customary ritual bearing of that day. And so our scripture says that he comes by night to Jesus. Now, that could be an attempt for Nicodemus to remain hidden, to be not seen by his peers. He might face retribution by his friends for being and hanging out with Jesus. Or this simply could be a suggestion that Nicodemus is in darkness, that he's in spiritual darkness. I think both probably are applicable here, but Nicodemus is intrigued with this man named Jesus regardless, and he has a pressing concern. He is trying to figure out who he is. He and the rest of his peers have become concerned with this man from Nazareth. It is early in his ministry, but Jesus has done enough wonders and signs and said enough things that he's become a bit of a problem for them. And so Nicodemus comes to him and addresses him with this term of endearment, a rabbi, teacher. And he exchanges these pleasantries. He, he says, surely you are from God. You do all these things. He, he's, I don't know, buttering up might not be the word, but he's, he's talking to them with great respect. Now notice the way that Jesus replies here. I don't even know if Nicodemus asked a question here. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter just like this. He has a stark reply to Nicodemus. He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This feels like an answer out of nowhere. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter here. He knows what's on Nicodemus' heart. And in this one answer... He has shattered any Jewish assumptions that their cultural identity, their physical birth as a nation, assured them a place in God's kingdom. Jesus is quite scandalous here because he is making it plain that it is not about human birth. Your birth does not assure you entrance into God's kingdom. Only a new birth, a spiritual birth, gives you that assurance. Now, the nation of Israel at that time was God's chosen nation. And if you belong to that nation, you, in some sense, you belong to God. And so the, the Israelites took much assurance in their physical birth that they were of God. But Jesus changes the script here. Now, a bit comically here, I think Nicodemus has a back and forth with Jesus on the sort of wisdom that he's trying to convey to him. He's mulling over how one might actually return into your mother and be reborn for a second time as if it was a scene from Ace Ventura in a rhino. He is literally thinking in his head, like, how does that happen? But of course, Jesus isn't talking about a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. And the weight of this conversation cannot be understated. This is an important matter. And Jesus does not mince words here. He says that you must be born again. Christ, by his authority and through his wisdom, 
shatters any notion that salvation, access into God's kingdom could be doled out on the earth through humanity. God had his purposes for the nation of Israel. He had a purpose in which they carried mankind from the fall into this very moment in time. God had picked a people, revealed himself to that people, given the law that was light to show them the distortion that creation was. He preserved them. He protected them for what? For this moment in time. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 4. He says in Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, just at the right moment, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This was God's plan all along, from the beginning, that Jesus would redeem God's people. No person, no nation, No man, no woman, no child. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, prince or pauper, Jew or Gentile. Salvation and access to the kingdom would come by God, through God, and for God. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying is that salvation is the work of God, it is the gift of God, and no one can reduce it or use it for their own status, for their own power, and he is saying to Nicodemus, a part of this ruling council, that salvation, access into God's kingdom will not be regulated, and it will not be abused like you have done. Will not belong to humanity. Nicodemus and his crew frolicked around looking religious, appeared to be righteous, virtuous when it was befitting to them, but make no mistake, Jesus is saying, none of that will save you. Only God can draw the heart of men into repentance. He is the only one capable of bringing the heart into himself. And so over the last three weeks, we've walked through what is the story of the Bible. That the Bible is God's special revelation of himself that has one point. It is the story of Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And so I want you to remember that when you hear these words that Jesus speaks. Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is this we? Jesus, in this passage, is linking himself to all the faithful of the Old Testament and all the great prophets who had come before him, and he is saying, all of us together, we have brought a testimony to you of who I will be, and you have not received it. And it is so clear that Jesus says, how can you And not understanding these clear and evident earthly things that all of Scripture, all of your ancestor pointed to me, how do you think that you're going to understand anything spiritual? All of Scripture pointed to this moment. Nicodemus Nicodemus missed it. Jesus is hinting here that he is about to do something unprecedented. Something so unprecedented that it will require 
a spiritual rebirth. A rebirth that doesn't happen through effort. God will take humanity out of the equation. And that is good news. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus, because the entire scripture is about him, uses an Old Testament story out of the Exodus. God's people were in the wilderness, in the desert, after being delivered from Egypt, where they were oppressed, in bondage, held in slavery. And those people, God's people, begin to complain and grumble about their conditions, and they lament that they had even left Egypt, where they were held in oppression. And so God sends a plague of poisonous snakes onto the nation of Israel who begins to bite them and venom begins to enter into their blood and they wake up and repent. They say, we have sinned against the Lord and God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and anyone who looked at the snake, this bronze serpent on the pole would live. Now, you might think, what does that have to do with Jesus? I mean, in Scripture, anytime you read about a serpent or a snake, it is implying evil, it is implying sin, which it can be a bit confusing on why the Israelites are looking on an image of a snake on a pole. But we also know that bronze is a metal that is refined by fire. And so the emblem of the bronze snake is a symbolic of sin that has been judged, that has been put under the fire. The bronze serpent foreshadows our Savior, that in the same way they raised that, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on a cross, and our sin was to be judged in him. A bronze serpent is a picture of sin judged and dealt with that echoes to what Christ would do. The people of Israel were not saved by doing anything. They simply looked at the bronze serpent. They had to trust that something so foolish as looking up at such a thing like a bronze serpent would be sufficient enough to save them. And surely some perish because they refuse to do something so foolish to them. But what is this a picture of? This is a picture of faith. Faith in Christ that, that Lord, I don't know everything and I don't know how deeply you have served me on the cross, but Lord, I trust you and I trust your word. The bronze serpent foreshadows Jesus. And then we arrive at this wonderful passage, John 3.16. And all of the corresponding text and all the conversation with Jesus surrounding that, this text conveys to us over and over and over again, it's not about you, this isn't you, this isn't you, this is not about you, God does this, God does this, Nicodemus, it's not about you, God will do this, you can't do anything. But in our simplification on the truth of Jesus here, and in the sheer number of times that this passage has been in front of us, 
to some degree, we have robbed it of its beauty. There is a misunderstanding that finds its way into this text. A misunderstanding that takes the object of God's love and that object's possession through faith and writes it at the center of this story. We love the idea of a God who loves us, who loves the world, who by belief gives them a never-ending life. But a deeper look at this scripture reveals to us that only God can be beautiful here. Only God can be beautiful in this text. God so loved the world. Jesus is using this word in Greek called cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmos from. Here it's describing the world, but not the world as it was created in Genesis 1, but the fallen world, a world that has walked away from God. It's a world use, a word called world that is used in our scripture that says, do not conform yourself to the world or abstain from worldliness. And so the idea that God loved the world does not express a sentiment where the world was so lovely that God followed suit or that the world deserved to be loved, so God did. It is something far more magnificent than that. What this verse is implying when it says God so loved the world is this, is that God so loved a God-hating world. That God so loved the God-hating world. And that is utterly remarkable. The same creation whose every intent of thought in their hearts was evil continuously, as we studied last week and as is true today, is the object of God's love. This is the cornerstone of the wisdom that Jesus brings to us when he commands us to love our enemies. God so loved the God-hating world. And sometimes we read this in a way that we think that we are worthy of God's love, that we are worth God's loving of us. God so loved the world. But listen, that's not true at all. And that is more remarkably beautiful than you think it is. We are absolutely unworthy of this kind of love. We are undeserving of his affection, yet he extends it to us freely and gladly. Like this is the type of ugly cry beauty, the kind of beauty that strikes you so deeply that all you can do is be overwhelmed by it. God so loved a world that did not love him. Yet we read this as if God's writing a love letter to us, extolling our worth. And we often without much effort, skip over much of the rest of the scripture to get to the end where we get to believe that if I believe in God, I get eternal life. God loves me and he wants me to live forever. That's a message that sails. All I have to do is check the box next to Jesus, hang around him for a little bit. Our understanding of this word eternal has created more harm than it has good. 
because we are all, including myself, creatures who are self-centered by nature. And for us, death is our greatest enemy. We fear death. So the promise of eternal life has immense value to us because we want to live forever. We don't want to die. And so Jesus can become the vehicle that serves me in getting what I truly want, to live forever. God loves me, and he wants to give me eternal life. So I think, well, if I just spend some time with Jesus, if I check the box and do some things for him, I'll put him in the mix of friends like my friend Carl, who loves me and brings me smoked meats on the holidays. And so I get Jesus, who loves me and gives me eternity, and I get Carl, who loves me and gives me smoked meats. It's a dream come true. Eternal life is not a promise that if one stays faithful and you check the right boxes, you give him a few Sundays out of the year, that if you're near him just enough, he will let you, when you die, into heaven. That is not how eternal life is communicated here. Eternal life is the byproduct of new birth. It's a possession of those who've been born again, of one who sees the poison like the Egyptians did, that is raging in their bloods and in their hearts and sees it necessary to look to Jesus. Eternal life is a byproduct of that new birth. It's not for the later. It's for the present, and it flows into the days after our death. This is what eternal life means in our scripture. Eternal life equals a qualitative and quantitative life. If you're playing the word bingo game today, I've added some big words there for you. Qualitative or quantitative is someone's or a thing's relation to another standard. It's excellent or it's quality. Quantitative is a measure of time. Eternal life is both a quality of life and a quantity of life. Eternal life is not just heaven. It is a life that is lived where heaven is present in the now. Living the life that will be true of us when we live in heaven right now as fully and as much and as often as we can. And for that to be true, it has everything to do with what is elevated in our lives. Are we the center of the story, or is Christ the center of the story? Because one leads to death, and the other leads to eternal life. There was a person who interpreted John 3.16 in a different way that I think elevates its beauty and elevates its true posture. He said it this way, and I'll put the corresponding scriptures on the screen, that the ultimate authority with the purest motive gave the greatest gift with the widest welcome and the easiest escape through divine intervention in order that mankind might have its most priceless possession. 
The ultimate authority with the purest motive gave the greatest gift with the widest welcome and the easiest escape through divine intervention that mankind might have its most priceless possession. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not come to condemn us but to save us because of his beauty and his goodness and not ours. He had every right to disown us. He had every right to destroy us, but he didn't. He so loved at the purest motive possible a God-hating world. And the evidence of Christ in our life is this. What is do we want the light? Do we want the light? Are we willing to step out because of the beauty and love of God given to an unworthy people, are we willing to come to the light or would we rather stay in the darkness? God loved us so much that he gave his son the light of the world. He stepped out of the heavens and onto earth to do for us what we could not do and he simply asked us to come, to take and have faith. So what does that really mean? Well, over the last few weeks, in talking about these themes of the story of the Bible, we've talked about creation, fall, and the law. And we said that we were made to enjoy God forever, to reflect his beauty. If we remember, we said by this mirror that we were designed to enjoy God forever. And as we enjoy God forever, he reflects off the mirror of our lives and into the world, that the world and all around us would know his beauty, and his worth. But in that garden, in perfection, through deception, we came to believe that we were more beautiful than God, that God was holding out on us, that there was something better. And in this decision, the whole cosmos broke. Creation was fractured. Humans were fractured. And we live with those consequences today, and we feel that lacking still in our lives. And God, out of his goodness and his grace, gives us the law. The law is the light that reveals to humanity who looks in the mirror in its shadow how truly disfigured and distorted creation and humankind is. And we are incapable or incapable of ever doing what this law requires us. It was here to reveal. It never heals. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We can't flip this mirror, but only Jesus flips the mirror. And he stands in this mirror looking back at you fully securing your positional righteousness because when God looks down, he sees his son, he doesn't see you. And he stands here inviting you into his grace and into his love that the world would see through you, not yourself, but the one who secured your righteousness. Jesus flips the mirror. Jesus on the cross absorbs all the hostility and violence that humanity had towards God 
and all the wrath that God had on humanity and its sins, he flips the mirror back and he stands in its place and gracefully invites you to come near, to come near the light. The love of God, the wonder of God has provided through Christ a way back into a relationship with God. Righteousness granted by grace through faith. God doesn't see you, he sees his son. And the more you come to him and the more you let his light expose your failings and your ugliness, the deeper you realize God's love and grace has been so fully and deeply extended to you. Tim Keller, who's a pastor at Redeemer in New York, he writes this. He says, the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimension of your sin. The sin under all other sins is the lack of joy in Christ. Friends, eternal life is a quality of life now and forevermore. We are now free from condemnation. That once and forever God dealt with our sin, he dealt with our ugliness, our disobedience, our lacking, our failings, and his grace extends to us in the deepest recesses of our own soul that you might realize through repentance just how deeply God has saved you. To know joy in him that you might be free. But you must be born again. This kind of love, this kind of sacrifice requires of a person to surrender to that kind of beauty, to that glory, to be crushed by its splendor, to know the bad, to see the poison that flows within ourselves so that we can recognize the glory of a God who still loved us and died for us and gives to us what we cannot do. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't, Jesus can. It's not about birthright, it's not about effort, it's not about location, it's not about your wealth or your power or your class. The gift of salvation is given by God and God alone. No one can earn it, no one can, can hold it from another, no one can deny it, you can't make it into formulas, you can't make salvation into a prayer that you say, you can't make a class about how you get saved. God draws his people into himself. He draws the hearts of men into the light for his glory and for our joy. He draws us to see how futile our efforts are, to realize the, the deep void of our own lacking, that we would look up. That's it. That you would know your need for him. That is new birth, looking up. Faith in Christ for those who can see it. Let us pray. Father, you are glorious. You are good. Your worthiness is beyond our comprehension. That, Lord, you would extend to us who don't deserve it, you would extend 
love and goodness and salvation, you are greater than anything that we could imagine. And you are bigger than any way we make you in our lives. And so, Lord, will you help us to feel the weight of our fall? Will you box us in, Lord, that our only out is to look up at you? Not that we would be condemned, but that we would be truly free. Jesus, you are more beautiful, more glorious than our hearts will ever recognize. Will you just give us a glimpse of that from time to time? That we were reminded that it is not about us in the least, and it never will be. That in our surrender to you, in our splendor in you, that we might realize in this moment what eternal life would look like. A quality of life that is being conformed into the image of the Son in which we will live forever with you. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your beautiful name.